0: They, uh, I was listening to a thing on prayer this week and I can't think of the guy's name, but he said this. Uh, he was talking about a guy who had prayed for a long week. Cause you know, as long as that appeared to be for you, the actual prayer part was only about four minutes of reading. You know, so you think of how long we try to pray sometimes and all these words that we try to fill in prayers with and all this time that we try to fill in. And, and here, this is the longest recorded prayer in scripture and it takes about four minutes. So maybe God is telling us sometime, get to the point. And stop spending so much time telling me about the point, uh, and let me answer the point. So, uh, there was a guy talking about a prayer though, and he said, uh, there was a guy who was getting up and he was, he was praying and praying and praying and praying. Finally, the pastor got up and said, while my brother finishes the prayer, we're gonna, we're gonna sing a song and to kind of get the service going. <laughs> and, uh, you know, in that, the, the commentator was talking and he goes, you know, when a person plays, the first three minutes we pray with them. The second three minutes we start to pray for them. And in the last three minutes, we pray against them. Oh, uh, so uh, if, if people around you are praying different, you know, keep in mind, maybe that's why. Uh, as we jump into this, this chapter, first Kings eight, I want us to think back a, a couple of weeks ago to chapter four, where we started talking about Solomon's worldwide wisdom. And as we talked about that worldwide wisdom and him being the wisest man on the earth, a verse that we used that he wrote was in Proverbs chapter nine. Verse 10, and it, it explained this and it said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is the foundation of understanding. So the the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If you want to be wise, you should start fearing the Lord and and what it says about him. And the knowledge of the Holy One, once you get that knowledge, you get that knowledge of him. That is just the foundation of your understanding. So everything else that you learn after that is built on that knowledge of God. As he goes into this and, and this prayer itself, it's safe to say that Solomon's knowledge of God is growing. Um, despite that, I know a lot of us understand where where it will go, uh, but it's growing at this point. His foundation and his prayer, he points out a lot of significant things in there um, to to do with this. So our knowledge of God should be the core of what we believe. But before we get into that, I got to look at just a couple things that are in this. One I thought was was spot on that they talked about a, a verse in Isaiah talks about waiting on God so that you can mount up on wings, you know, and soar above things. Can you picture yourself as we've looked at this a couple times, but can you picture yourself as David who had a heart to want to build the temple? But God said, No, you gotta wait. You know, David didn't do nothing though. He he gathered material. He saved stuff, he, he got stuff going, he he got people ready uh, and excited about what was to come. So, so he was doing something, and in that process of doing something, but waiting on the big picture, if you recall back to, to our to our study on Samuel and, and other things, you know, he was also rising above his problems. You know, he had a lot of problems. In the middle, but he began to rise above those problems as he was waiting and doing things the way God wanted him to do. So as we looked at the temple last week, I, I pray that you took a lot more time to investigate it. Like this chapter, there's way too much to cover in one sitting when we talk about the temple and in this prayer and everything else. So but one thing I want to point out for this week is this many things in the temple prefigured Christ. That, that was one of the, the, the big things in the Old Testament that the temple was for the very center of the temple uh, was an altar. Right, right outside the holy place where, where God was to dwell. The sacrifices are made there. A lot of sacrifices we just we just read about and talked about. And in order for a sacrifice uh for sins to be effective, if you study scripture and stuff, you have to have four things that are, that are prominent. One, or four things that are present, you could say. Uh, a sinner offering a sacrifice. Well, that makes sense. It wouldn't be much of a sacrifice if there wasn't a sinner offering it. A sacrifice itself. Couldn't have a sacrifice without a sacrifice. Uh And, and a priest to do the offering. And then the presence of God to receive it. Doesn't do much good to, to offer something if there's not somebody there to receive it. So if, if the temple is to be prefigured Jesus, in Jesus you get all four of these things. As, as we jump into the New Testament, you, you look at it. At the cross, he became a sinner in my place. He is my priest. And he offered himself as my sacrifice. And he is the very presence of God that receives it. So so we, so we get this whole thing painted throughout this thing. And then you jump in even further And look at what what gets what gets deeper here in the innermost court of this temple. The Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And we've even got a picture of the Ark of the Covenant. So you can make sure you get it. Harrison Ford found it for us. You'll notice his his ever beloved hat that's always there. Um, He would be zapped dead because he's not a priest and he shouldn't be touching those poles. But we'll let Hollywood have their their picture there. Uh, But but you get this. And, and, And here's what we need to understand at the very center where this Ark of the Covenant was. The Ark of the Covenant contains the presence of God. You know, it's symbolic. That's, that's what it what it's there for, where the presence of God dwells. It, it was closed off by a veil that's four inches thick. It, it would be called the, the, the parakeet, which which is not a bird. Uh, but, but, it, but it literally in, in Hebrew would mean to shut off, because that's what it did. It shut off the presence of God from sinners who couldn't be in the presence of God. Uh, which is why when we jump to the New Testament and we see Jesus dying, we see the veil being torn in two symbolically of his body being torn in two. It's the presence of God is now open to all of us unworthy sinners to to, to be there. So this structure is pointing to Jesus a thousand years before Jesus is even even there. You know, so you are thinking the more I believe, uh, you know, uh, uh, a Hebrew that that follows scripture and ends up believing in Jesus and, and discovering all this stuff. I think it means so much more to them when they go back and look at all this stuff. So That's why sometimes we try to point some of this stuff out. So that we can understand like God was setting this up the entire time. It's not like God had a a new idea, like everything in the Old Testament that's happening, which we've only covered a very small portion of it. uh, Which, by the way, somebody told me if we keep reading through every verse, you know, you would think this week was 66. We would have told Abby to skip a couple. uh, But they say, if you keep reading every verse by the end, I'll be read through the entire Bible. And I was like, well, you are right, except for at the rate that we read through every verse on a Sunday morning. Uh, Jesus will have come again, established another kingdom, and we will be reigning in that kingdom before you ever get to the uh, second uh, half of the, of the word. So uh, maybe you should read a little more. Um, but but in this, everything that's going on, God is setting is setting it up to point and symbolize symbolize Him. So so jump into this thing. First Kings chapter eight. The Ark of the Covenant comes into the temple again. Big big deal. Too much for us to cover one thing. But this ceremony would be like we look at the Olympics. Our Olympics got postponed because of COVID. So you think of next summer. When we when we had the Olympics rescheduled, you think of that opening ceremony. I mean, it's a big deal, man. People from everywhere are coming in. I mean, this this is a huge, huge thing. And the temple itself, you wonder, well, again, we look at verse two, it says the seventh month, and, and you you've got to pause because last week we said what? It was the eighth month that the temple was completed. So you're thinking, hold on now, was was something wrong in scripture or what? No, nothing's wrong. He completed it on the eighth month, and then he waited eleven months before it gets dedicated. Because the, the temple is nothing and it's not ready to operate until the Ark of the Covenant is set in the holy place. Uh the the temple you could say the, is nothing. It's the most important item in the temple is the Ark. So if it's not there, everything else fails. So you're saying, well, why did he wait eleven months? Well, we get it at the at the end of what Abby just read where it talks about this big feast and festival that's going on. Uh, we we would call it the, the Feast of Tabernacles or, or or you know and cool enough, uh, for those of you that don't know, some of you do. Uh, this happened October 2nd through October 9th of 2020. So we're, we're now studying about something that took place. Talk about us getting in line with, with the dates of scripture. We're like right, right there near it on what just happened. Um, so you say, well, well, why would, why would Solomon have waited? Well, for first, you got people gathering for this festival, so everybody would have been there. If you want to make something a big deal, more people make it a big deal, right? So, so, so they've got this going on. One of the reasons why they're not going to have any people in the stands. Uh, at at Raider Stadium this year. Because he wanted that opening thing to be this, this big, big thing. And and those of you who don't know, even though I hate the Raiders and any of you that vote for the Raiders should come to the altar at the end. uh, but, but, but in that, they built the biggest and most massive stadium. Uh, we compared last week this, this temple value, uh, to it. And Danny corrected me. My 13, uh, trillion dollars was off. It would actually have been close to 18, uh, trillion. So that made me check out even more and want to, want to look at even more. So that was just the gold. When you get in the silver and the stone and just the stuff we can count in the workforce, somebody wastewater me, by the way, calculated it would have been a $160 trillion project. Now, the dude who built Raider Stadium, which was very expensive, is mad that it's empty and is prolonging the, the big opening until it can be completely full. All the money we spend on churches and stuff, how upset do you think God gets sometimes then when they're empty? After we have put so much time into the looks and the money and all this stuff going into it, right? Maybe another reason that takes this even further, and I think this is the reason throughout. I don't know if you noticed throughout this whole chapter, they're talking about the Exodus, talking about being delivered through the wilderness, talking about the the past things that they had to overcome, and and this is going in there. So 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 Feast of Tabernacles is, is setting that up, and then another reason this this year, if you break this thing down, another house would have been the year of Jubilee. So so this, I mean, he has not waited 11 months for no reason. He's waited 11 months so he can get on board with God's calendar and get stuff right for this dedication of the temple. So this is a big, big event. And it says this in verse three, the priest took up the ark. So verse three, look at that. Solomon, I got to point this out because Solomon's careful not to do what his dad did. You remember back in 2 Samuel chapter six, uh, David uh, has an error. You know, the right people aren't toting the ark and the wrong person touches the ark and he dies. Um, So Solomon doesn't want that to go through. And then in verse nine, easy to read over and easy to skip, but you say nothing was in the ark except the two tablets of stone, which Moses had put there. Any of us who have studied scripture, we know that earlier there was more than one thing in the ark, right? Do, do we know this? For, for those that don't, we'll just look at it real quickly. There was the golden pot that had manna, Exodus chapter 16, verse 33. There was Aaron's rod that budded, Numbers chapter 17. And then the tablets of the covenant, which came from Exodus chapter 25. Say, well, What happened? I don't know. Uh, It doesn't tell me what happened. So I can speculate that maybe a the Philistines... Uh, had it and they were able to somehow get the top off and put there. You remember they had the, um, the golden tumors and all that they had put in it, uh, and, and the golden rats and that kind of stuff. Maybe they took out some stuff, but they couldn't take out one particular item, which was what? The tablets, which is what? God's word, God's law, right? So, so, and, and maybe I'm, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but to me, when I look at this, what I'm saying, cause you think about the manna and you think about Aaron's rod, those are like signs and wonders of God, right? So when I read it, those things are missing. What I see then is God is saying, you know what? The signs and the wonders one day may stop, but the word of God will go on forever. You know what I'm saying? Like even when the signs and wonders stop and you don't get to see them and you don't understand, you're like, man, how did all that happen back then? But it ain't happening right now. Even when all that stops, the word of God has not stopped and will never cease to exist. And they had no right to take this out. So I think it's a it's a significant, huge thing that's taking place because we know what our trust shouldn't just be in signs and wonders. Our trust should be in the word of God. Even when we don't understand, even when we can't comprehend what's what's really going on in this thing, okay? So so one more thing before I jump into the main point. Yes, this is still the intro. Uh so, so you get this, and in verse 10 through 13 it says, The glory of God fills the temple. We got the very first uh what do we call this? um what are those what are those those Pentecostals? We got the first Pentecostal service that takes place uh right now. You say, well, what do you mean? because the preacher got up to preach and he was doing some things, and the Holy Spirit took over so much that he kicked everybody out of the church I mean look at it, that's what happened. It says that the glory of the Lord, the cloud of the Lord filled the temple so much that everybody had to get out. The glory of God was so awesome that the normal service couldn't go on because there's nothing normal about God. So any of you that are thinking, well, "I wish we could get you to stop preaching before twelve o'clock," well then you better let the glory of the Lord fill you up so much that I got to run out the door. Right? That's pretty. Yes, I mean the Lord says it. That's how you do it, right? But but check this out. So much even more. So so verse eleven says the priest cannot continue ministering because of this cloud, the presence and the glory of God, so big in its flow and it's flowing so hard. it flows so much. Understand this now because this is another little thing on it. It flows so much in the in the house that it kicks God's people out the house. Maybe God's trying to tell you all to get so full while you're in here that you got to run outside. But they didn't run outside and stop service. Understand by the end of the message, we understand that they were outside still continuing the service. Samuel or, or Solomon was having his prayer. And then at the very end, it tells us that Solomon then began to have another sacrifice uh, that took place. So, so service was going on. It just didn't have to go on in here. Now, now, when you read this and you're thinking, hold on now, if God is all goodness, And God is all love and God is holy and all this. Why would his presence, the the cloud of God, the glory of God, why would the glory of God kick people out? Because God is holy. God is holy, church. He is set apart. We we do ill justice to talk about the emotion of God when we talk about warm and fuzzy feelings only that God brings. Yes, God will bring a warm and fuzzy feeling sometimes. Sure. But when you look at Peter and Luke chapter five and you look at Isaiah and chapter Isaiah, chapter six, and you look at John and Revelation, chapter one, they felt so stricken in the presence of God. They were so uncomfortable that they had to move and get away. Man, well, what is they simply cannot be comfortable sensing the difference between their sinfulness and God's holiness? It should be the only thing that forces you to come to the altar or break down in prayer during the middle of a service. You cannot feel good about yourself when you realize how good God is. Isaiah himself had it. You don't forget where he looked and he said, I'm the king. I'm sitting on the highest seat. Yet you are so much higher and so much mightier than I am. Right? That's the viewpoint we should be getting. And when we look at this and God's glory comes in and he fills us up. This also happened in Acts chapter two. You, you might or some of some you New Testament you might remember, you know, Acts chapter two, when, when the church first gets established and they're they're gathered where they're supposed to be. And what we call the the, the the upper room and and, and their fellowship and, and all this stuff going on. And it says the glory of God filled that room so much that tongues of fire began to come on them and, and flames were on their head and all this stuff. What is God, God putting his stamp of approval on what's taking place? I approve of this. It is good. I put my name on it. And if I put my name on it, that means I'm OK with it. You should go out and continue. Doing this. And that's what God does here. And so we got God's stamp of approval on the temple. And it stays for so long, not to, to spoil the end for some of you, but it stays so long until Ezekiel says this in chapter 10, verse 18, that he saw the glory depart from the temple. I only point it out because, yes, why this is so good and this is so powerful. We don't want to get to a part where Ezekiel 10 happens. Where the glory of the Lord fades away because Israel begins to reject God and divide the, the monarchy, right? Solomon's words and his thoughts reveal this knowledge of God. What does it start with? Number one. So intro's over. You're good. Number one. God is a mysterious yet accessible God. Solomon understands this in saying this, that God is so mysterious, yet he's accessible. He's so mysterious, we don't understand him, but yet he understands that he is accessible. That's why he's building this temple. So look at this. Can anybody comprehend God? Anybody want to do like an explanation of God and how he doesn't have a beginning and doesn't have an end and... Because when I think it's just God doesn't have a beginning and an end, my brain's already exploded. But I'm kind of like a simple minded person. So maybe you're smarter than me and and you can understand it. But, But when I look at this, what I understand this is what Solomon is saying is this. If God is this big and so incomprehensible, then we should give up any hopes of trying to figure God out with our own minds. Like if my little peanut brain could explain to you guys who are so much smarter than me. God and and, and everything that that he does and and how he exists and and all this stuff. That would lower God, would it not? So so it's safe to say that if we're going to know God and understand God, we have to do it through the way that he reveals. Which which is what? Not just words and not just uh, understanding of knowledge and and all this stuff. It's diving into the word. It's building a relationship with him. It's, It's getting this stuff going. The reason God, it says, dwells in the darkness of this section is, one, because of our limited capacity in our mind to understand him. He's that big. And two, we have a, a twistedness in our sinfulness. Our, our biggest sin, I think, as the people of God sometimes is a chronic shortfall that we minimize God. Go, oh, I don't minimize God. Yes, you do. You downplay His glory all the time. Praise time should be a 30 minute thing. Like, we should have to kick out some songs because praise time takes too long, or we should just go longer in service. One of the two. You know what I'm saying? Like, we downplay His glory. We maximize our own cap- uh, capabilities. We we get this idea that God is just a little bit bigger and a little bit smarter than us. No, he's nothing like us. Thank God. He's not just a little bigger and a little brighter than us. How big is God with no beginning and no end? Well, well, Scripture tells us, or uh, Scripture mixed with a a little bit of worldly knowledge, he stands outside the universe that's at least 12 trillion light years across. By the way, they admit themselves they still ain't found the end of it. So 12 trillion years, that's light years, by the way, across, they still ain't found the end of it, and God's God's just chilling. He's just sitting there, right? And he also reminds us in his word that I spoke this with just a word into existence. I guess I spoke this into existence. Isaiah says that he calls all 3,000 billion trillion stars by name. By name. 3,000 billion trillion stars, right? I, I can't remember some of your names sometimes. That, that's how good God is, right? But, but you think God, like he's sitting there in, in his place looking at across 120 trillion uh, light years across. And he goes, oh, there's Beetlejuice. Oh, uh, there's Alpha Centauri. Oh, that's, that's Bob or whatever the name of the other stars is, right? Huh? And he's so in touch with every part of his creation, guys. Isaiah also says that he knows every hair that falls from our head. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, we understand that, brother. These, these, these people with a good head full of hair still, they don't get it. They don't know how awesome it is that God knew every hair I lost already. Like, he knows the ones that are still going to fall out. You, some of you know, right? Any of you men ever, ever fell into the trap having to clean out your drain in your shower? Not because of your hair, unless you're Joe, but because of your wife. <laughs> Joe says, my beard hair's clogged up the drain so much, right? Huh? But you ever had to do that? But yet she doesn't ever look bald when I, when I finish cleaning out the drain. But yet Isaiah says that God knows every hair that's falling out of her head still. Is that not, is that not crazy, right? Like he's so in. And and I think Isaiah's point is this. Does does he literally count short? I think he could. Right. But what's Isaiah really getting at? He's so in touch with us that he cares about every part. That's awesome, man. That's awesome. Now, you compare that to the capabilities of our minds. Right. My phone. I cannot work a phone for nothing. Crystal tells me all the time, maybe it's time to get a new one. No, it's time for me to get a dumb one. Like the smart one is, is not working for me. And the smarter it gets, the dumber I get uh, you know, I let my kids use it half the time to teach me uh, how it's to be. Sometimes we don't understand like things that go wrong in a car. You know, we don't understand like why this drain is clogged or why this electricity problem is happening or, or why. This, you know, we, we we can't understand nothing. So if our minds are that limited, why should our minds be able to understand God? I mean, does not that sound kind of funny when we think about it that way? I, I think so, at least. Right. How should somebody with limited minds like ours expect to comprehend everything about God? Solomon says in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8, verse 17, Well, this is probably a key principle for the wisdom in life, no one, that includes you and that includes me, can comprehend God's work under the sun. Nobody. Nobody can comprehend it. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know it, they cannot really comprehend it. Here, somebody, you somebody tells you, oh, I can explain everything about God? You just laugh. You know what I'm saying? Like even if they're this super religious person that that really means good good by it and they're they're, they're on fire because they understood like this little much. You know, I look at it this way. Every day God's doing about 10,000 things in my life and I understand about three of them. That means there's 9,997 other things that God's doing at that exact moment that I have no clue about. You know how big and how awesome God must really be? That's 9,997 things that remain a mystery to me and really the three I probably have minimal understanding of. Right? That God is doing it at that at a given moment. So the second thing, so not only is he starting this thing out, making sure we understand how big God is, the second thing is this, that God is narrowly acceptable, accessible. And thinking, hold on now, isn't God everywhere all the time? Yes. But if God is that awesome and that infinite, doesn't that mean somebody like that we have to meet on their terms? Am I right? I mean, whether you, whoever gets in in November, right? You can't just roll down to the White House and talk to the president, am I right? Correct. But like you can roll down President's Avenue and you can walk through those gates if you want to. And you'll get tackled by a bunch of guys wearing really nice suits that your tax money paid for. So then when they scuff it up, they got to buy another suit um, and waste more of your tax money. And, and you will never get to talk to the guy who's sitting at that, that big room. Right. And that's just the president of our nation. Right. We're talking about God. So if we want to meet with God, don't we have to meet with God on his terms? Sometimes I think we don't find God because we're trying to meet him on our terms. I'm going to tell you right now, like I, I can call Trump all up. Trump, I promise to vote for you if you just come on down and meet with me. He's not coming to meet with me. So why should God? Right? Now, now God sent his son all this stuff. Don't, don't get us past that. But we need to understand, remember Solomon's thing here is just a perception we're getting on how awesome God is. So 27 through 29 is where we're at in this prayer. God really does dwell in darkness. It reveals what? That, that we have to meet with him on, on his designated place. But in our world, here's the problem. Here's the problem. We've got this opposite view that that God is like a mountain. Some of you have heard this in the religious world. God is like a mountain. All roads lead to to God. Right now. Now, here's my problem with that. And and, and a guy even does a or tries to do an awesome illustration with it. I was listening to this the other day and and he said that the he has a story of three blind men. He said these three blind men, they fall into a pit in the pit is an elephant. Now, these are three blind guys that have fallen into a pit with an elephant. So it's a really big pit. But I understand he's doing with an illustration, right? But it says these three blind guys, one of them grabs a hold of the tusk of the elephant. And he's like, there's a spear in this room. Okay. Another guy grabs a hold of the elephant's leg and he's like, no, there's a tree in this room. The last guy grabs a hold of the tail and he's like, there's a broom in this room. And then the narrator says, and this is where you get all roads leading to God and the mountain perception. the, the, The way the world wants you to view it is you need all the perceptions to get the big picture. And we're thinking, yeah, but that's a pretty cool illustration, and it works, right? Here, here's my problem with the illustration. I got three problems with it. First one is this, logical. Only one person sees the whole elephant, so only one person knows it's the narrator. So he's really done himself an ill justice because he's denied everybody else the whole picture, right? So so, so if you got that going on, and you've got this narrator who's sitting out looking, he's the only one allowed to see this, we've already got a problem. Now, the second problem is this. They're not saying, when we look at, at world religious things, they don't say complimentary things. One religion says everybody goes to heaven. One religion says everybody goes to hell. Another one says you can be reincarnated. Another one says you disappear and become nothing at all. And even a child is smart enough to understand that they can't all be right. Right? I don't care if you put a coexist sticker on the back of your car or or whatever. I'm I'm not being bigoted. I'm being logical and I'm being honest. Okay? We can't coexist. That's not the way it works. You might as well just say everybody's wrong in that case. All right? And the third thing is this. If God has, has a mountain or God is like a mountain, Who else would you approach that way in your life where all roads lead to the same thing? Maybe let's do an illustration. Maybe you're having a heart attack, but you really like Walmart. So in the middle of your heart attack, you tell whoever's giving you a ride. I have a heart attack. Brian's going to take me, Brian, put me in the bag of that flatbed, right? And carry me to Walmart. Cause I like Walmart. I do. Their prices are good. There's never anybody in the aisles to bother you who works there. that could give you information. Um, so, so you got that going. You're not bothered by their employees. Uh, I mean, think about what else about Walmart that uh, that, that this is just so great. You know what Walmart doesn't have, though? Walmart doesn't have a cardiologist on L13. So it doesn't matter how much I like and how much I genuinely and sincerely prefer Walmart. If I go to Walmart with a heart attack, I'm going to die. Now, well, what's the answer, then? I mean, you can get a lot of things at Walmart. Big Mac, tire rotation, which your center if you go there for your tires. Uh, eye exam. Uh, a haircut, uh, you know, a bathing suit—you'll immediately regret. I got—I got a list of them here that I started. But heart surgery is not one of those things. So, so this this cardiologist—he's got—he's got this thing and he says this. I can help you, but to get my help, you got to come to my place. I'm not going to perform surgery on you aisle 13 at Walmart. You come to my place where I got my tools, my instruments, where I am. Well, let's look at God like this cardiologist, and what is He saying? I put my name and my power in this place, and if you want my help, you better come and seek me there to get it. Right. Now, what is this place? Keep in mind now what we've, what we've been talking about. They're looking at, at one specific place, which is cool. You need a meeting place. Right. Meeting places are good. You got significant others. You, you normally get your meeting place with them. You got friends. You, you meet with them. Right. So, so meeting places are OK. But the big picture here is that this meeting place is a picture of Christ. So, so for you and I, it's no longer having to come to a temple. It's going to the temple. Right. To, to, to get this accomplished. So if God is real and, and, and we're just, you know, uh, don't have an imagination, whatever, we want to know him. We got to seek him in the place that he says. So, look at what the apostle said, Acts chapter four. They're talking to a crowd of people and and talking about salvation and real miraculous power and and all this stuff. So they got the signs, the wonders, the law, and everything going on. And they say this: a lame person actually needs healing power to get healed. Like you can't just have a, a desire of sincere feelings, right? I got, I got a desire to be skinny, but it ain't gonna happen. All right? I'm gaining weight left and right. So so, so so we got that going. Sincere feelings don't do it. A dead person needs actual life. It doesn't matter how good-intended they are, or how sincerely desirable they have to be alive. What they say in Acts chapter four, verse 12: Jesus had the power for both of these things, just as He has the power of salvation. There is salvation in no one else, but there is no one other name under heaven given to people which we can be saved. So, so there's, so there's power, and they're painting. And he goes, "You want access to God? You got to seek it through Jesus." Solomon is saying, "Jesus or, or, or God? You know, you put your name here, so I'm going to seek you here." And if that makes me look like a fool to the rest of the world, I'm probably in pretty good company. Because scripture says when I look foolish to them, I'm looking wise to you. Right. So, so so we got that going. You seek God, where he wants you to be application for us. The church. Now, the church isn't the only place we meet with God, but we better understand the church is a place that God has established his power at many times. Gathered believers were two or three or more. And they're gathering at the church, the body of Christ. If you don't want to talk about it, be in a building. Right. If you want to experience God, you've got to get committed to the church. Not just casual relationship, but, but a real growing relationship with everything that's going on. Number three. We'll come back to that church thing here in a minute, a couple steps. Number three. God's a promise-keeping God. This, 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 is, this, is this is what Solomon understands. Look at verse 15. Now, he knows we're knuckleheads, so he, can, he, he repeats this a lot. But verse 15, the first time he states it. God has fulfilled his promise by his power. He repeats it again in verse 20. So if, you, so if you take notes, just, just put a little dot. Uh, verse 20, verse 24, verse 25, verse 26. And then at the very end, verse 56. He says, blessed be the Lord. He has given rest to his people according to all that he has said. Not one of all the good promises God made through his servant Moses have failed. Not one. Not one. You know, we have a lot of people in today's world that make us promises, right? You're hearing a lot of promises for the next two to three weeks. Don't believe none of them. I don't care which side, right? None of them. They're all liars, guarantee. right? So so, so here, maybe we can write this down at this thing. Solomon means aligning your life around the promises of God establishes, establishes a better knowledge of God, right? If you align your life around the promises of God, you get a better knowledge of God. It means that I'm living in a way that if the promises of God aren't true, I'm going to look like a fool to the rest of the world. I've used the illustration before here sometimes. Like, you know, and, and this shouldn't be the only reason you get saved. But but an easy illustration sometimes is this. You know, if if I'm wrong at the end, I mean I might have lost a couple of fun experiences, and that's really about it, right? But if the other side is wrong at the end, what have they lost, right? How bad? How bad must it have been, right? So 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 you know we look foolish to the world, and sometimes we're doing things wise God's way, but but the opposite is well too. Right? So I'm, and I'm not talking about becoming more moral or, or more nicer and all that stuff. All that stuff's built on the foundation of God. That, that comes later. You've got to be able to point to areas in your life where you can say, if the promises of God aren't true, I'm a big old fool. Right? So, such as, look at some of them. Just some of them. Hebrews chapter nine, twenty-seven. It is appointed unto man to die once and after that the judgment. Well, if I don't think about the eternal picture all the time, I'm going to be in a heap of trouble when I am standing in the kingdom before an almighty God who has to hold me, hold me accountable. For all this stuff, right? Proverbs chapter three nine and ten. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled with overflowing, and the vats will bring uh brim over over with new wine. What? So I should be honoring God with all all of my first fruits first, and if I do that, then I'm getting blessed. I, I'm gonna tell you right now, like like some of the coolest things is when you get so loyal in your tithing, like the income doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. Anyway, we all aren't even big on income. You don't pass the plate. No, because I don't think you. I don't think you ought to make you. I think it ought to be a desire of your heart. Like, you choose to get on give a fire. You choose to drop it in a box. Right? That, that's part of your relationship with God. Then you get to, get to Psalms 84 which I share. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk in his way. Now, for God's sake, believers, please hear me. Do not use this verse with unbelievers and try to tell them that all the good things going, all the bad things going on in their life is for God's purpose. What did the verse just say? What, you, you got it, right? Like, highlight it, underline it, make sure you understand it. Because some of us are dumb enough to use this verse all the time. We look at somebody who just lost their entire family, who doesn't believe in God, and then we tell them, oh, no good thing will God withhold from those who walk in his way. You think that person's thinking that at that moment? You think they'll think that in the next six months? You think they'll think that in the next year? Not unless they really get a hold of Jesus, right? Because what is he saying? No good thing will he withhold from those who walk in his way, right? You've got to be in his way for this to be working. So what would your life look like if you believed some of these promises? What would our marriages look like? What would parenting look like? God says, I will will withhold no good thing when you're in need of parenting advice. I will withhold no good thing when you're in need of marriage advice. I will withhold no good thing when you're in career advice, right? If we believe that verse, then something ought to be happening in us, right? Have we ordered our life in a way that assumes God's promises are true or not? Solomon says, I understand that God is a promise-keeping God, and I'm going to praise it for it. Number four biggest portion so we're not going to read all we'll look at a couple of it 33 through 53 God is a grace extending god he's a grace extending god right the biggest chunk of this prayer 33 through 53 is all about god's willingness to forgive and restore after sin look look just briefly at uh, 46 through 50 and then we'll go back and look at a couple more too when they sin against you for therefore there is no one who does not sin so we're all in good company here there is no one who doesn't sin right and you are angry with them. Our sin makes you out angry. And you hand them over to their enemy. So, oh, so hold on. We had not just committed like little sins. Like we, we're up to the varsity level now. Like we're not playing JV anymore. We're varsity level sins. We've been handed over to our enemy. And their captors distort them to their enemy's country. We're by distant or nearby. And then when they come to their senses, oh, thank God we get to come to our senses. Understand this. For repentance to work, there has to be a, a moment we come to our senses. And the land where they were de- uh, deported and repent their petition, uh, you and their captors land, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked. First thing you got to do is tell them, God, I, I messed up. Like I, I was wrong. Your way was right. And I, and I apologize. And when they return to you with all their heart, it's all about the heart, their soul and their land and their enemies who took them captive. And when they pray to you in the direction of their land, that you gave them ancestors in the city you've chosen and the temple that I've built. So now, now we're talking about this, this set location. May, they, may you hear in heaven, your dwelling place, their prayer and petition and uphold their cause. May you forgive your people who sinned against you and all their rebellions against you, and may you grant them compassion before their captors, so that they may treat them compassionately. Wow, a grace extending God. Now this is hard for us to to really comprehend, isn't it? Because we're not really grace extending people, are we? But but if, if we're to say, you know, uh, I think it was. um ah uh, man i'm not sure who said it so so spurgeon or somebody somebody wise and smart they, you know they were asked what was the difference against world religions and ours and he, he writes up to, to, to the board in this class because they've written all the things that make us similar and all the things that you know all this So, he said, what's the difference and he, and he comes up in a chalkboard and he writes grace across all their stuff that's it grace grace is what makes us so much different than the rest of the world right now, when you look at this chapter, one of the things I kind of thought about, other than it being a prayer, is it's kind of like Solomon's doing a commencement speech. You ever been to like a graduation where you're, you know, graduation means what? You're going to the next level, all right? The people of God should be getting ready to go to the next level. So Solomon comes in, he's he's giving this commencement, but he's so honest in it. I mean, you just heard what we're talking about, right? What what would a commencement speech to today look like? You know, you're special, you're unique, you're a snowflake or a skittle or something like that. My guy, when I graduated college. Hey, I'm serious. You laugh. Listen to some of these things. I sat through my college graduation and listened to a guy tell me about not walking through life with a bucket on your head. And you know, I'm thinking like, I, I, I was pretty decent in high school, but now I've got a college degree that I've done pretty darn well to get and one of them cum laude things, whatever you call it in front of my, my name and all that. I don't even know which one that shows how important it was to me. But, but I got all that going, right? And this guy's going to sit and talk to me for 30 minutes about not walking through life with a bucket on my head. Like, commencement speeches sometimes are a joke, man, right? They, they tell you nothing will stop you from achieving your dreams. You ever said hurts are all these things? Some of, you, some of your high schoolers are getting ready to go through one of these. They're going to hear this. Nothing will stop you from achieving your dreams, except for maybe a disease that you'll get, except for bad luck, except for getting hit by a bus on your way home, except for if we look at statistics, half of you are going to get married and have a divorce, uh, except for all these things, right? Why do we use commencement speeches to do a bunch of meaningless cliches? How about let's just be honest like Solomon, right? What's Solomon's whole prayer? You messed up, but God loves you enough to get you right. Right? I mean, that's, that's what he's saying. Just those four verses we just looked at. You, you've messed up. you failed. But God loves you so much that he wants to correct things. Even before that, 35, he says, when the heavens are shut up and there is no rain. That'd be a big thing for people back then, right? Because what? They were, they were farmers. They were, they were, so if you don't have rain, you don't get a crop. You don't get a crop. You don't have food. Alright, so, so, uh, verse thirty-seven. When famine or plague comes to uh, comes to the land, or when an enemy besieges you from their cities, when disaster and disease come, thirty-eight, and when a prayer is made, then hear from heaven, forgive, not only forgive, but forgive and act. Now, now, here's here, here's a part that you're not going to like because we normally have good pictures. We don't have Harrison Ford for this picture, okay? But, but here's what you need to understand. This ceremony, this time period right here, is bathed in blood, okay? So get serious for a couple minutes and picture a second. Go back to verse 5. That'd be read in your Bible. Right? Verse 5, it says, King Solomon sacrificed sheep, goats, and cattle. How many of them? So many, you couldn't count them. How big does a number have to be that it's so many you can't count them? Well, hold on. I'm thinking it's got to be real big because in verse 63, Remember when the service gets kicked outside and they got to finish it out there? In verse 63, it says this. You know, this is the end. And when Solomon finished, he offered a sacrifice of 22,000 cattle, 120,000 sheep and goats. He's got 142,000 animals getting sacrificed at the end. That's a big number to me. So I'm wondering how big did the first number have to be? Now, now we don't like this picture because it's it's not all rose petals and, and and babies breathe for us and all that stuff, right? But here's the reality. This was a bloody, bloody scene. I mean, as Solomon is standing up there, there's been so much sacrifice before he starts this prayer that he couldn't even count them. And here at the end, he's going to do another 142,000 more animals. This is a bloody mess, soaked in blood. But this isn't meant to be like a morbid scene. It's trying to show us that the entire basis of our relationship with God has to be based off our sacrifice for sin. And if this is to be a picture of what we've been talking about the whole time, right? Shouldn't all this blood be pointing us to the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus? Right? Shouldn't we understand that I'm not getting to him unless I'm standing on the blood that was slain for the forgiveness of my sin? When I walk into the presence of God, I stand on ground that has been soaked in the blood of Jesus. And we have to. And that's a really good thing, right? Because Solomon just told us a couple of verses ago, there's not a one of us who don't sin. There's not a one of us that haven't messed up. There's not a one of us that haven't made a poor decision. And when you come to your senses, here's what's awesome, man. When you come to your senses standing in, in, in a place filled with overflowing blood of Jesus, there's God who's ready to forgive and restore. Look, look at what's said in these verses, right? This is, I mean, jot this down because we don't have time to go into each of them, right? But, but jot these down. When you do this, you've got the ability to, to rebound from defeat, verse 34 and 33 and 34. Everybody loves a good rebound, right? You, you've got the ability to regain lost blessings, 35 and 36. He tells them, you lost some of your blessings, but you got the ability to regain them, right? Uh, you, you got the ability to request personal healing, 37 through 39. Things going bad, you can get healed from them, right? You got the ability to regroup for spiritual victory, 44 through 45. You got the ability to repent and be restored, which we just read about 46 through 49. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Why? Because we, we, we can find all the help we need in trusting in him. C.S. Lewis. I I had it right. C.S. Lewis is the one who had that. I did have it written down. Grace. The only thing that makes our religion, our relationship with Christ different. So therefore, shouldn't God's church be characterized by grace? Don't we do an ill justice of representing God whenever we don't have grace? Right? Look at this last, or second to the last thing. This one's real short. I was going to kind of leave it out. But I think it's important for us to understand. God is a justice conscious God. Now, we don't like that in church. We don't think about that often, right? What do you mean he's gonna get, he's gonna get justice? Solomon knew that there'd be times, anybody ever like been wronged and didn't get to get even? You ever been wronged and didn't get to get even? Or maybe you're like me, you don't want to get even, you want to get ahead. Right? You, you, you ever been wronged and not been able to get even or get ahead? I, I think Solomon understood the same thing. Look, look at verse 32. Verse 32, uh, chapter 8 may you hear in heaven and act, may you judge your servants, condemning the wicked man by bringing what he's done on his own head and providing justice for the righteous by rewarding him according to his righteousness. Solomon's saying there'll come a time where we understand that we don't get to get the justice that we want. But we talk about Solomon being wise, right? Here's what happens when we understand that we can lay all that at the feet of God. The bitterness, the rage, the desire for vengeance, we give all that up. Because we understand, like, it's not for me to go get, it's for God to get. Like, he, he will get it for me, right? He, he will get it for me. There, there was a survivor of um, a genocide in Croatia. I, I can't say American names, so I wouldn't dare try to say this guy's name. Uh, you know, but, but he said he watched his friends and his family be murdered in front of him. He, he writes in his book, their throats were slit right in front of me. And the only way that kept me from going insane is to know that there was a God who is angry at what is going on and who will one day restore justice for what's going on. If not, he says... I would have, uh, been, I would have such a desire for vengeance that I would have went crazy. Only when you believe that God has the sword in his hand can you lay it down from your own hand. Only then he says, can you be free from hatred and bitterness that arises when desires to avenge the wrong are all around. Wow. I don't know about you, but sometimes some people just make me mad, right? We, we gotta let go and just, un- like, that's, that's one of the blessings though. Understanding God will handle it. Understanding God will handle it. Last point. I think probably one of the biggest for us today since we're sitting in church. God is an outward focused God. He's an, didn't that sound weird to say though? Like I had to, had to look at it a couple of times to make sure like I was, I was 41 through 43 at every point in Israel's history. God had in mind the outsiders. Now that's cool guys, because you and I are the outsiders. If you didn't know it, you're thinking, yeah, but hold on. Doesn't it say that he chose Israel and they are the chosen nation. And I've always wondered like, why? Why did he even choose Israel? Like what made them even better? Well, if you're going to do something big, don't you need somebody to do something big too? So who's to say, and I I don't, I don't know. This is the way God did it. Okay. So I'm going to stand over here. Who's not to say like, God just randomly picked them. I mean, right. We, We don't get to know this. I'm not saying like, there's a verse that says it. I'm not saying God really did flip a coin. I'm just saying, we don't know. So what's to say, like, God didn't randomly say, you know what, I'm going to pick that nation right there. It's in a tiny area when you look on the map, so it'd be even cooler. You know, he wants to take the big or small things and make them big. So so what's to say, God didn't randomly pick them and say, I'm going to do big old cool things with these people, so big and so powerful that 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 10,000 years later, they're still going to be talking about them. Now, it didn't just stay in that little area, right? I'm I'm not in that little area. I'm way away from that area, right? So, so what is God saying? Is God not saying that, that I picked them because I had the outsiders in mind? When Solomon first gets this stuff going and his wisdom first becomes known, we, we read about it already. What does it say happened? You guys, I know you guys remember because you listen. And, and since you listened and you already remember, I'm going to help you out. There, there was something that we talked about. Just shake your hands like you know what I'm talking about, right? There was something we talked about like other kings and other queens began to came and check Solomon out. You might remember it now. You're like, oh, yeah, there was that queen, right? Why? Because God wanted the outsiders to come in and check out. He needed a location. You need a location if you're going to show off something big, right? So, so he needs this location, but it's always with the outsiders in mind. And, and this queen and, the, and these kings and all these people, they came. So God's, God's idea of salvation, whole thing, had outsiders in mind, right? So these kings and these queens, they get there and they begin to ask questions. You, you might remember one that we do, a, I personally believe, a poor justice of explaining why God was really mad. But you may remember something in the New Testament where Jesus, he's going for, for also a feast. And he gets to the temple. And by the way, you need to understand. So When I say you guys have to check out more, you really got to check out more. So, so he doesn't get to the Holy of Holies. He's on the outside part where Gentiles would be allowed to be. And what's going on? They're selling things. They're not just selling things, though. What are they doing? They're ripping people off. And the whole time I've ever read this growing up, I always thought like it's like when we do a, a concert and try to sell CDs or or T-shirts outside, and we we charge an extra two dollars because it's a Christian CD, and God forbid we sell stuff at the same price the rest of the world sells stuff, right? So so I always thought like that was the idea. No, no, the idea you need to understand, you need to understand the structure of the temple, right? Like like God's people can get the holy of holies can get here, which is just priests, right? And, and and then you you got the next level, and then the next level where um Hebrew women would be allowed to be, and then outside of that, so. Us Gentiles are even less than Hebrew women, and we know what they thought of them in Scripture. So you you get all this picture going, and even outside of that is finally where the Gentiles are. So we're like, we're there because we can see cool things happening, but we're not like in there yet. And it's at that level that Jesus comes in and gets furious. Because they're doing stuff in such a way that they're blocking the outsiders from being able to even get in. They're ripping them off in such a way that they can't even get in to see what God's about to do. Do you understand? That's what Jesus was most mad about. It wasn't that they was making some money, right? I'm sure that may be a little part of it. What he was most mad about was they were stopping outsiders from getting the big picture. You and I, do you not think he gets furious when we treat church the same way? Now understand what they were doing. Then if they had that idea, they were treating church like it was all about us, right? All about us is the idea they had. And Jesus took some whips to them because of it, right? Now, let's be real. And and I'm talking. Yes, I'm talking to the people who have the attitude that I can come to church every week and I can take, 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 take without giving. Let's go ahead and end on some toe crushing time, right? I'm talking to people who come to church and say, you know what? I ain't got to help with the babies. I ain't never going to clean up. I ain't never going to sweep. I ain't never going to bring no food. I ain't never going to help. I ain't never going to do this. I'm going to come and get something for me because it's all about me. I wouldn't amen it either. I'm going to be honest, right? This is the level that God is getting at. He's like, when you think you can come to church and it's all about you, you've missed it. You've missed it and you felt failed it because when it's all about you and you're just getting, you can't be given. And if you're supposed to be mimicking me and my ways, then shouldn't you be giving back? The whole focus of your life should be a blessing to others. Do we understand that? Like even to the point that our, our career and our money and everything is based on it. You want to know where your heart is? Look at your bank account. Either way to do it look at it seriously spend your most money you can say it this way god's like a spiritual uh tornado that's coming in you guys remember we had a tornado and given never had one never had one was I alive but but one of the neat things about it like stuff would be sucked in up here but it'd be spit out over there now you think about it that we apply that to god god like a spiritual tornado right so he sucks you in but then he also spits you back out you you get it like we get sucked in and, and I'm sure he rips off all the badness while we're spinning around inside or whatever. Maybe even throws some other stuff into us because he's God and he can do it while we're cycloning. And then he spits you back out to do something good. Like that, that, That's where God's at with us. Where would you be? If you ask yourself this, where would you be without the generosity of Christ in your life? Think on it, seriously. If you've been saved by God's great generosity toward you, then you should be the most generous person toward others there is. Like we dropped the ball sometime with this, guys. You were an outsider at one time, right? We weren't all in at one time. We were all, somebody, some of us were outsiders. Had to be an outsider to get brought in, right? Shouldn't our focus then be on helping others get brought in? What are we really doing? These six truths that, that Solomon gets with with knowledge, man, that he expresses them in this prayer and all a sudden He does this. This is what's awesome. But but it also kind of gets some others. And I'm done. Last verse, I promise. i, I told you before that, that Kings and, and Samuel, they're also done through Chronicles. So we'll get to skip a whole book of the Bible. Imagine that. Right. So, so as we go through it, we'll jump to Revelation in no time now. So you, you got that going on. Still very far from Revelation. of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Right. But, but Chronicles, it mimics the same moment. Second Chronicles, chapter seven. Solomon finishes his prayer. And here's the verse. We all know it. And God responds to him. And he says, well, yes, Solomon, I've heard you. And if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, they will pray, they will see my face, they will turn from their wicked ways. I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will hear their land. Now, Toby Keith, I'm very sorry. It, understand it, because some of us have done what Toby Keith does. Toby Keith, I'm sorry, and to the rest of the Christian world who are Americans, I'm sorry, because here's what we do. We take this verse, and we pretend that this verse was about America. Don't get your feelings hurt. Just be honest about it so you can get it right. We think that it's about America, and if America will just repent and turn around, God will bless them, right? This verse was not written to America. This verse was written to the church. Okay? So what God is saying is not if America will turn around, but if the church will turn around and if the church will will repent, if the church will cease to do those things they didn't do. And if the church will get right, then I will bless the church because they are God's people and they are called by God's name. Now, here's the cool thing. don't think it's just all bad, right? That if we pray and God will heal us, guess where we live? America. So guess what can be blessed? America. But it's by us who have then been blessed by God first. We need to get the older operations right, guys. Because if we try to take verses and, and make it sound like it's, it's just designated to, to our country, I'm all about national pride, okay? Don't get me wrong. I love America. I think it's great. It's got a lot of screw-ups, but but I, I wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. But I don't need to manipulate scripture to make it sound like America's the next chosen nation of God. Okay? I don't need to do that. God's got a chosen people. Luckily, I'm part of it. But it ain't because I'm American. It's because I'm part of his kingdom. Okay? And we need to get to that kind of understanding, guys. We need to get to an understanding. That there may be some things and stuff that, that we really don't like, that aren't going the way we want it to go, that, that don't look right, don't seem right. But if we're truly going to believe the promises of God, then we also got to come to a point where we say, you know what? God's ways are so much greater than my ways. God's understandings are greater than my understandings. God's generosity should make me want to be generous to others. If God's about restoration, then I'm about repentance so that I can repent. I can get right. And then I can bless others outside. What if just at the end of services, we get so full of God's glory that when we get outside, we got to keep a service going. What, What if a service goes longer than a day, longer than a week, longer than a month? And I'm not talking about like our designated time of service. I'm talking about our life, a life of service for him outside these walls so that when people look inside they don't say, man, those church people are so full of crap. Right? You want to know one of the number one causes of people not wanting to believe Scripture? People who believe Scripture. Now that's sad, but it's true. But We can change it. We can change it. We can repent. We can get right. God can bless us and we can bless them. Let's pray. Father God, we love you so much. God, though long and and so much things overlooked, Lord, I thank you for these verses. I thank you for this chapter. I thank you for the ideas in it. Lord, I pray that you fill in the gaps. I pray that you speak directly to our hearts and our minds this morning, Lord God, on areas where we need to address some things. Where we need to get some things right, Lord God, because we've done them wrong for so long. God, where we've had a, a lower view of you. May we repent this morning, Lord God, for having low expectations of you for making you smaller when you truly are great and glorious. Lord, increase our our eyesight so that we can see how big and mighty you are. And then increase our love for the world outside so that they can see what you come to do to the outsiders. In your name we pray. Amen.